Hello and welcome back to Careers Talk. I'm Kerry Eustace. Coming up this week, hands up those who want to be teachers. More and more of you, it seems. We'll be talking about the increasingly competitive field of teaching and getting some expert advice from Teaching Union NASUWT on the steps you need to take for a job in the classroom. And we'll be hearing from a newly qualified teacher about what it's really like at the chalk face. Our jobs top 10 features education roles at BAFTA and the House of Commons and Julian has some advice that could save you from a Facebook faux pas in his tip of the week. Thankfully, no big recruitment freezes this week. The sun has even been shining on some sectors. And I'm joined by Harriet Minter and Ali White, who have been sifting through this week's headlines. So, Harriet, you've picked out a big story for us this week. Medical recruitment isn't in very good health at the moment. Well, it's not that it's not in good health. It had a bit of a boost this week when um, the Department of Health announced that there was a shortage of junior doctors, so they were going to have to recruit from India and get lots of young junior doctors to fill the places. What they're basically saying is that we've got lots of young junior doctors here, but they all want to go and be brain surgeons. They don't want to work in the less interesting specialties, so they needed to fill the gaps. And they actually got um, the British Association of Indian Doctors who kind of look after recruitment they're called BAPIO, got them involved and tried to really create a big recruitment drive. But there's been a bit of a problem because the immigration laws basically say that if you're an Indian doctor, you can come over and practice here for two years maximum and then you have to go home. And what BAPIO is saying is that actually that's not much of an incentive mm. for young doctors to come yeah. across. It's not really long enough to feel settled mm. or to get into a job or to really progress in your career. So they've asked if the immigration laws can be changed to give a four-year maximum. And currently, the Department of Health is saying this isn't going to be possible. It's only going to be two years. So they're attempting this recruitment drive, mm. but not really giving any incentive to come across. Okay, not so quite strange. What, um, what areas are the, the specialities or, you know, the specialisms that they aren't sure. being able to fill at the moment? The ones they're having real problems with are paediatrics, obstetrics, gynaecology... And anaesthetics. Okay. This is an interesting story this week as well because of the timing. I mean, this week there's a recruitment drive. And on the other side, the McKinsey report, which was commissioned by Labour, was released by the Department of Health this week. And this was Labour's research into where the NHS needed to have efficiency savings or where there'd be cuts. And they outlined uh, 137,000 NHS job cuts in this report. But the report was buried during the election. It kind of, you know, went off the radar. And the Department of Health have now published this report. You know, this were the plans. And they've actually said the new health secretary, which is Andrew Lansley, has distanced himself from this report, saying that actually they're going to try and redeploy staff around the NHS rather than make cuts. I'm not convinced by this, I have to say. I think that everyone sort of knew they were going to have to make cuts. Everyone knew it was a bit bloated and something had to be done to slim it down a bit. I think they should actually just be honest and say, this is how many we think we need to make. They could maybe say, it's not 130,000, it's less than that. Mm. And then make them, I think... Saying things like we're going to redeploy staff is just wordplay. And I think I also think it's going to be difficult news for NHS staff to to swallow that they're getting this report, you know, possible cuts, possible redeployments alongside recruitment drives from elsewhere. I think that's going to be. I think that's true, but I think that is basically what's going to happen when you have an NHS which has lots of managers but not enough doctors. Ali, what story have you picked out? 
Um, well, it's staff retention that caught my eye this week. Uh, a survey that nearly a quarter of UK employees plan to leave their job in the next 12 months, according to a survey of about 4,000 workers. And it's um, recruitment and pay freezes were being faced by these workers, leading to suggestions that the recession-proofing measures implemented by their employers could be behind the desire to leave. In fact, I noticed a statistic saying around three in ten staff claim morale at work is worse than last year, especially in the public sector being most affected, which led to nearly a quarter saying job satisfaction has suffered. But it's interesting because back at the start of the year, there was a research saying that more than a third of workers are waiting for the recession to end before they move on. And it was researched by Robert Half showing that more than a third of British workers are planning to leave as soon as the economy is more stable. Nearly half um, said that they're waiting for the official government figures that, to confirm that the recession is over. Yeah. So it seems that maybe there is a bit more confidence in the market now. You know, At the time, they were saying they were nervous about the credit crunch and they were thinking twice about taking risks. So perhaps this new um, research shows that people are, are kind of ready to take that next step. Oh, that's it. Because I, when I first saw this story, I, I thought maybe it was people that just wanted to change career, not because they were threatened about job security uh-huh. and what I thought was interesting was the sectors that were highest that people wanted to leave it was stuff like agriculture yeah. and also energy was in there as well but I I thought and I've seen reports recently that actually there are more opportunities in energy and agriculture than some of the other sectors so it was an unusual area that people wanted to do leave. Do you think it is as kind of Ali said a bit getting fed up of your workplace? Maybe it is yeah. And actually people sit there and think, I'm not going to move now because there's a recession on, I'm not going to find anything else, I mm. must stay where I'm safe. Mm. And actually do it for a year and then think, I just have to yeah, get out of here now. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's funny because I did read another story, just picked, because uh, it caught my eye this week, saying um, six in ten Brits were actually unhappy with their job. And, you know, they went wow, into... that's really high, isn't it's it? It's a lot, there are lots that's of detail. Huge. But I wonder if people are expecting a bit too much. Do you remember we yeah. had our careers advice the other week who said if you get three and a half good days a week... That's a great job. Yeah. I wonder if people think, just because I don't like going in on a Monday, I yeah. don't like my job. <laughs> they think the grass is always greener somewhere Absolutely. else. <laughs> well, I've got some sort of good news if people are wanting to change careers into another sector. Um, vacancies in the charity sector are up 15% this month on in May from April. And um, I thought, oh, okay, that's good news. People who want to work in charities, more opportunities, and it's a sign that the you know recruitment market, mm-hmm. the job market is recovering. And so I looked a little bit deeper and, I tried to speak to some of my charity contacts, some of the experts on the site, and they said that actually charity fluctuates quite a lot. It's one of those sectors that moves up and down because of funding and and two months, you know, that sort of period isn't enough for them to take it as a big, meaningful sign. But um, it's also good news, according to some of my colleagues in Guardian Jobs, because it's indicative of the funding situation, because a lot of charities would have been waiting to see what happened when the government changed and they're making all their announcements to see if their funding was safe, because obviously some big charities rely quite heavily on funding. There's places like sort of Turning Point, which are a social care yeah. charity, and essentially they're offering a service so they rely on government funding so if they didn't have it then obviously their recruitment was going to be affected but then there's charities like Macmillan who uh, rely on fundraising that's where the majority of their finances come from so they don't have that reliance on that funding so if you're a candidate in the charity sector it's always a good idea to find out what the funding source is so you can sort of work out your job security and what sort of career path you're going to have. And I just wanted to mention that there's another growth area which looks like it's going to be expanding for a long time. Um, the UK hospitality, leisure, travel and tourism industry is predicted to grow by more than 200,000 job opportunities by 2017. 
And a lot of this seems to be tied in, uh, people are saying, with the sort of growing decade of sports we've got coming up, like the World Cup next week and hospitality ties in with that, you know, walking down the high street, everyone's trying to sell you beer and pizza deals. But then even leading into the Olympics. So they're saying that there's going to be a lot of job opportunities tied in with that. It's another hot sector to keep an eye on then. Indeed. So we've just heard from Harriet about the lack of doctors leading to an overseas recruitment drive. Eager to find out what professionals in the sector thought of this news, Harriet has been speaking to some junior doctors. Harriet, some doctors are actually finding this news quite frustrating, aren't they? They are. I think there's a general frustration at a junior doctor level anyway. Um, As the story says, they do have a lot of problems getting the specialties they want. There's a bit of a bun fight, I think, for popular ones. But actually, I've been speaking to another junior doctor who's had a similar problem along the same lines, and we've got him on the phone now, so we're going to ask him a few questions. Hello, Saeed. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. I know you're at work, so we'll try and keep it quick. Can you tell us a bit about how you became a doctor? Sure. um, uh, I always wanted to be a doctor, and I always wanted to train in a good centre. I I was born in Iran and, and raised in Iran. And I decided to come to England um, at A-levels. And I fortunately got four A's at that time. But being a foreign student, uh, it was quite difficult to get into uh, medical school simply because they have a, a shorter number of seats for overseas students. Um, but you did? And did you, you, you got a place at medical school here and you qualified? I did. I, I went to Birmingham Medical School. Uh, after five years of medical school, I, um, I embarked on being a foundation year doctor. So this is the first year that you are, in fact, a junior doctor. Again, I faced another hurdle there where um, we were told that uh, foreign medical students are not allowed to apply firsthand. Uh, even though, again, you've gone through the um, uh, same training as everybody else has had. So what you're saying is actually the, you could have trained in the UK and then gone home and worked as a doctor at home for, you know, in Iran for a few years and then come back because they would have happily recruited you from abroad. But yep. because you trained, you couldn't go straight in as a junior doctor. Exactly, exactly. It's, it, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a very political person, but I, I'm, I'm sure that it had something to do with it. Students like myself, not really bragging, but uh, <laughs> given the fact that uh, we, we, we go through much fiercer competition to get into medical school, sure. we don't tend to lack the, the intellectual capacity. And I just wish that uh, we were given a little bit more respect on, the, on that side, really, as, as opposed to a doctor coming from abroad, not being trained here, uh, not being familiar with the system here, and start practicing straight away. So do you think it's a good thing that the NHS is recruiting from abroad or do you think they should be trying to bring more young junior doctors up through medical school? I I believe there are a lot of people from abroad who would want to train in England and they are happy to pay the the international fees to to study here. And and, and why not train them here? Why won't they train them instead of bringing somebody from abroad who who may have a a different reason why they want to, to, to work in England? Okay, so that's quite interesting. You think you should be offering more university places and training them up in our system so that when you're in, when you go into hospital, you automatically know the system and what you should be doing. Sure. Thank you very much, Saeed. I won't keep you from your patients any longer. Thank you very much. Now you're back to doctoring. Okay, thank you. Many thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Saeed. We're now going to go over to another junior doctor, Guy Cockcroft, who is actually at home ill in bed today. Hello, Guy. Hello there. How are you? 
Yeah, not so bad. Not I'll, so bad. I'll get by. <laughs> I'll get by. It's a bit of a case of Dr. Hill thyself, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> it's going to have to be today. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, we've been talking about the recruitment drive at the NHS today. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what exactly you do at the moment. I am a um, foundation year one doctor. And foundation means that you've just been let loose on the patients, is this right? That's right. Scarily enough, yeah. <laughs> I've been qualified for 10 months now. What issues did you kind of face when you were looking for a job as junior doctor? Did you find it easy or was it quite difficult? I think finding a job wasn't a huge issue. I think the main problem was, you know, um, the application for these jobs when you're coming out of um, medical school. I think that's the main issue. The way it goes at the moment is an online um, application that you send off. And it's more about, to me, it's more about being able to write eloquently about yourself than it is truly about how good and proficient a doctor you'll be. And do you think that's something that needs changing? Or do you think it's just something that uh, medical students need to be more aware of, perhaps? Maybe they need more practice in writing these application forms? It's certainly not a perfect way of um, of assessing uh, the medical students. Having said that, I couldn't easily come up with a, a better way of doing it because obviously there are a lot of medical students applying for a lot of jobs and it's a very difficult thing to do. But I mean, um, I would have much preferred myself to be able to go to an interview, you know, apply for a certain job, apply for a post, turn up to the interview and have a chat with the people and for them to choose who they would like to do the job. I'm not bad at, you know, science and maths and things like that, but I'm not very good at English uh, literature and English language. And so I don't think I come across very well if I have to write about myself on paper. That's fair enough. Um, I'd rather have a doctor who knew the science than um, science than Shakespeare. (laughs) Um, As you've seen in the news, the NHS are doing a big recruitment drive abroad for um, junior doctors. Do Mm -hmm. you think there's a particular reason for a shortage of junior doctors? Is it just... You can't get enough people into medical school, or what do you think? I think there are certainly difficulties getting getting people into medical school these days. There's a lot of things putting people off. You know, the pay is not as good as it used to be. Certainly, what, two or three years ago, they took away free accommodation for junior doctors. Um, now, in essence, that equates to about a £4,500 pay reduction. Um, if you think about it, we're coming out of medical school after five years of medical school with debts in excess of £25,000. And with the new EU Works Directive, we don't get the opportunity to work extra hours to make any of this money back. What ends up happening is that we still work far more hours than we are rotated to do, but we're not getting paid for them. If five o'clock rolls around and that's the time you're supposed to be going home and you still have a patient that needs seeing and needs dealt with or is unwell, then you will stay until the job's done. And there is no possible way that you could leave that patient and just hand over to someone else to continue. I mean, it's unethical and it's not, you know, it's against everything we've been trained to do. We had a situation where um, where we got audited as to whether we were sticking to the EU works directive. Obviously, it came to pass that, well, if we were honest, we weren't sticking to it. And uh, the registrars were the, the worst offenders. This was when I was doing a surgery rotation. And the reason they were the worst offenders because they were stuck in surgery. And there's certainly not a situation where you can leave, you know, halfway through surgery because, you know, time's up and that's that. But yet in the report, these uh, surgeons were described as negligence, which I think is the complete polar opposite of what they were doing. They weren't negligent because they were working these hours. They were doing everything they could for the best for their patient. 
um, but yet they were described as negligent, which I thought was quite awful. What do you think about recruiting junior doctors from overseas? Do you think that's a good thing for the profession? or? Well, I mean... Uh... It, I think it's going to be a case of needs must. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's you know, the home trained doctors, you know, doctors who are trained over here, I think they should get priority. Having said that, if there's a surplus of jobs and no one to fill them, then of course we, we need to get doctors from overseas. I see no reason why they shouldn't be allowed to continue. I see no reason why we need a two year cap on them. If they're going to come over here to train, I think they should be allowed to come over here and train as as we would okay guys well that was really great thank you very much i'll let you get back to your sick bed and i hope you get well soon thank you very much <laughs> that was guy cockcroft and before him you heard saeed mosley talking about what it's like to be a junior doctor working in the nhs today if you'd like to comment on this story then follow the links on the show notes which will take you to our forum Now, have you ever bashed out a bitchy email about a colleague and sent it to them by mistake? Or has a troublesome tweet come back to haunt you in an interview? If so, take heed of Julian's tip of the week. Remember, you're on record. In these days of modern technology, Grandpa Lindley's advice to everybody would be that whenever you send an email, whenever you leave a voicemail, and even sometimes when you say something out loud, in an office, just remember that there are other people listening and other people might not agree with what you have to say. It's a very old piece of advice, but I would certainly say the best thing to do is count to 10 before you leave that voicemail, send that email, or even post that Facebook update. And think carefully about how your words are going to be received by the person you're sending it to. So I've had plenty of examples of this in my career. There's one time actually I'm very embarrassed about when I was having confrontation, big confrontation with an agent over telephone when I was working at Heat. There was disagreement and at the end of the phone call, which ended quite abruptly, I was so angry that I slammed the telephone down, picked it up and slammed it down again, picked it up and I carried on doing that for about five minutes whilst swearing. And the terrible thing was I caught the attention of the entire office And it was really embarrassing. About five minutes later, once I'd kind of calmed down and sort of realised that I'd allowed my stress to bubble over, it was really embarrassing to see that I kind of exposed myself, if you like, in front of colleagues, but more importantly, people that work for me, because I'd sort of allowed my stress and my anxiety about that situation to to override my common sense, which is, should have been, count to ten, and then kind of go and probably scream into my balled up fist in the bathroom instead. Um, It's really easy to forget sometimes, especially when you're on Facebook at work, that, well, anyone else that you're friends with in the office, in the company, in your industry, can see what you're saying. There's one instance in particular that made me really angry when I asked somebody to do something for me a couple of years ago. And she did it begrudgingly, but claimed to be incredibly busy, and she was doing me a massive favour. But then... I saw her on bloody Facebook messaging someone else in the office, literally swapping comments about something. And so, of course, the only way that you can deal with that was I literally added in a comment saying, hello, busy. And of course, the messaging stopped instantly and she very sheepishly came over and apologised for having said that she was so busy, which is absolutely the right thing to do. However, she shouldn't have flaming well said that she was too busy in the first place. You know, just remember at all times on Facebook, everyone can see what you're up to. 
you know, either hide yourself offline or more importantly, don't flame and go on in the first place. If you're at work, then, you know, get to work. Don't spend your time fiddling around on Facebook. So to sum up, my three pieces of advice would be press save on the email before you press send and come back to it five minutes later. Count to ten before responding to an angry telephone call or an angry comment. And to remember that everything that you post on Facebook is viewable to everybody that you're friends with and quite often some of your colleagues as well. That was creative director at Bauer, Julian Ninley, saying, remember, you're on record. Unbearably exciting news now. We're actually giving Julian's tip of the week something of a makeover next time. Our working life guru becomes Agony Uncle for his new feature, Ask Julian. If you have any burning questions for our expert, post them online and he'll address the best ones in the pod. Time for a quick Q&A review now. Ali has been following the forums and in particular our discussion about getting into B2B journalism. Okay, Al, um, what highlights have you picked out? Well, I've got a good one that's quite close to my heart. shorthand. I spent many, many hours getting my 100 words per minute. But the panel actually asked um, how important is shorthand, especially to B2B journalism, because um, it has sort of different aspects than straightforward newspaper journalism. And it, the panel were quite divided. It turned into a bit of a debate, actually. Um, but they said, you know, overall, if you can get it, it's just certainly not going to be wasted, you know, if you want to put the effort in. Some people said they had their own kind of hybrid shorthand that they kind of made their own Developed method up. their own style. <laughs> yeah, which has worked for them. And <laughs> they say plenty muddle through without it. You know, someone had worked for 10 years without shorthand, just always tape recording their interviews. And someone else chipped in to say, just buy yourself a good recorder. They're great. You can get good verbatim notes. And unless you've got, you know, fingers on fire trying to get that quote, you know, a lot of the time it's hard when people yeah. speak so quickly. Yeah. So that was interesting. And another bit which uh, I thought was very clever is when you're looking to, to do work experience, you know, check out the publishers and how successful they are. You know, have they won any awards? Um, and someone said that could point to the fact that they could be um, have more proactive and ambitious editors and might actually be a good place to either get your work experience or even, you know, see what it's like to work there and maybe apply when you're looking for a job. Um, third bit I thought was really interesting was specialist courses and this is a lot different to what I'm used to because when I did my training it was quite traditional kind of postgraduate down the newspaper route or the magazine route um, but this is like I'm saying a lot of the degrees people do now are actually quite vocational so you get your kind of basic journalism skills there so when you're going on to a postgrad you can actually specialise sort of in sports journalism international journalism so there's even one now a science and environmental journalism Wow! and that's great because you know if you want to work in B2B journalism you're specializing then in your training so you can go straight out into the jobs market and say right I already know you know a lot about this sector hire me so yeah gonna make you stand out (laughs) that's a really good one thanks Ali no problem ah there's that bell again and as my teachers always used to say it's for my benefit not yours no it's not time for lunch it's time for our guest Darren Northcott National Official for Education at Teachers Union, NASUWT. Darren began his career as a primary school teacher and has worked in schools in Newham, East London and Cheshire. Hello, Darren. Hello there. Um, Darren, I'm keen to talk to you about a number of recent headlines that are suggesting that teaching is becoming increasingly competitive. I don't know if you saw there was a story this week about the General Teaching Council for Scotland had found more Mm. than two out of three newly qualified teachers are are failing to find a full-time job within a year. And that sort of follows on from the 
teach training development agency figures earlier this year that saw a rise in career changes. And what do you think about the health of the sector at the moment? And are your members finding it tougher to find work? Well, I think over the past decade or so, teaching certainly become a more attractive um, profession for graduates. And there's a lot of evidence to um, back that up. So there's a lot more people wanting to come into teaching. And no doubt that's going to make it tougher in some instances for uh, for people to find uh, work as teachers and also to get on to teach training courses as well. But I think at the moment we're also looking at a number of other factors that, that are making it tougher in some instances. I think we're looking at the moment at a very tight labour market where um, you've got a, a lot of people perhaps who may have looked at alternatives to teaching are perhaps now attracted to teaching because uh, other job opportunities are restricted because of the recession. I mean, that's clearly uh, an important factor there. And also in schools, we've seen um, a decline uh, now in the secondary sector, but a few years ago in the primary sector, in the number of pupils on roll. So there's been a kind of declining number of um, of children and young people in the education system. And that knocks on in the terms of the number of vacancies there are um, in teaching. So you've got a combination of all those factors has, I think, made it um, in some cases, not, not in all, absolutely, but in some cases, it has made it quite tough for um, newly qualified teachers to find work. Okay, so if you want to become a teacher, regardless of how competitive it is, and mm-hmm. what, what options are there for you? There, there are a range of options now as to uh, an individual perhaps thinking about becoming a teacher. And you can perhaps most kind of conveniently divide those into kind of higher education-based routes and school-based routes. The higher education-based routes involve either at the end of a degree taking a, a qualification known as a PGCE, and that will give you qualified teacher status and entitle you to work in the in the school system. Uh, there's also degrees which are, which are kind of first degrees, bachelor level degrees, which again at the end of those uh, give you an entitlement to work in the school system. But we're also seeing increasingly uh, routes into teaching that are based in schools. So you, there's a, a more common route now known as the graduate uh, teacher program. And that involves an individual working in schools with children while getting employed and paid uh, as an unqualified teacher and while they're doing that work they're getting the skills and experience they need to become qualified teachers so in essence it depends upon uh, an individual looking at their own circumstances uh, what their own kind of inclinations are whether they need to carry on working or whether they can stop working for a while and pursue a full-time course of study those are things that people need to think about when they're thinking about one of the many ways into um, teaching. I suppose one of the big decisions as well is, you know, how to pick your subject. I mean, which Mm. are currently in highest demand and what advice would you give to teachers when they're trying to make that decision? That's a really important question because for for some teachers, they've got a range of subjects that they could could select given what degree they've got. For a long time now, the the particular areas of shortage for teachers, I mean, we've just talked a, a moment ago about the fact that it's quite hard to find work in some cases, but there are still some shortages within the system. And those particularly are in science and mathematics teaching in the secondary sector. I mean, those are areas where a lot of work has to go on to continue to make sure that talented graduates can enter into the profession. So there's always been a lot of demand for teachers in those kind of subjects, in science, technology, uh, mathematics, engineering. But I think that the, the most important thing when teachers are thinking about what subject they want to teach or what age phase they want to teach. Do they want to teach in secondary? Do they want to teach in early years or primary? I think the most important thing is what subject do they like most? What are they going to enjoy teaching? Because you really have to enjoy the subject you teach in order to get the most out of teaching and give the best experience to the students 
that you work with. Clearly, you've got to look at what, where the opportunities are, but you should always be driven primarily by your interests and um, the age of, of pupils that you want to teach. Those are the key considerations I would always recommend to people to think about when they're thinking about um, those kind of questions. Okay. Are there any resources out there, you know, like quizzes or, you know, websites that people can go to to help them decide or ask those questions about where they'd be best suited? There are lots of places where, um, where, where information can be obtained. I personally would recommend the TDA's website uh, as a really good first port of call for anyone thinking about going into teaching. It's very clearly set out. It's very comprehensive. And uh, there's lots of advice and guidance there that you can, um, you can access. Another good way of getting a kind of idea about teaching as a career is to speak to a teacher. Teachers are, are, are very enthusiastic, uh, in my experience anyway, about the work that they do. And they can give you some real insights um, so that's a route and an option I, I, w- I would very much recommend. And also there are, uh, for people perhaps who are a little bit um, further back on that road, perhaps um, coming towards the end of their compulsory schooling in secondary schools, there are lots of, there's lots of advice and guidance there as well through the Connection Service and other career services that can really help people make that decision as to whether or not they want to be a teacher and if so, what sort of teacher do they want to be. So there's lots of advice out there, yes. Thanks. I'll make sure I'll put some links with the podcast to the resources you just mentioned. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, the, there's a huge story, isn't there, in education at the moment about the academy status sure. that Education Secretary Michael Gove is inviting schools to apply for. And I know details are short at the moment, but, you know, what potential impact will the academy status have on the profession? And what challenges do you think newly qualified teachers need to sort of prepare themselves for? Um, we've got academies at the moment, of course. There are over 200 academies in existence and uh, and the, it's likely that we're going to have more. You're right. I mean, they're, they're very complex and the issues surrounding them are extremely complicated. But, but one important difference, I think, between uh, maintained schools, as it were, and academies, is that academies have a lot more power and ability to determine their own curriculum and determine the way they go about teaching. And that that is quite a challenge, I think, for someone entering the profession and working in an academy, because they will have been um, trained in a context of a, of a national curriculum, of a curriculum that applies in, in all schools. So that's something clearly academies are in the minority of secondary schools at the moment Um, but as more and more academies open this is going to be more of an issue about the way in which training teacher training really equips someone to deal with the particular ways in which an academy is going about delivering teaching and learning so that that that's a challenge but certainly shouldn't put people off um, thinking about becoming teachers and and most uh, NQTs I speak to who've worked in academies are able to make the adjustment and to kind of um, make sure that they're working a effectively in their academy but that is something I think people are are very interested in about how that's going to work and what impact academies will have on on teacher training. I wanted to also to ask you relating to academies I mean TDA launched a campaign earlier this year to try and encourage more teachers into Mm. challenging schools they Mm. were having problem you know attracting top talent and if you know um, the academies are getting the outstanding status and they you know they've got this great sort of image are there going to be more problems you know sort of attracting those teachers and uh, a worry about the status of different establishments? 
um, that's something that people have raised as, as a concern and, and you can understand what, why that would be. I mean, at the moment, academies tend to be focused and the policy of, of the last government was focused on opening academies in particularly challenging um, circumstances. So perhaps schools facing challenging circumstances uh, w- would become academies. Mm. And, and most academies you see at the moment um, have that kind of background. And they've been the ones, perhaps schools in those circumstances, that, that the TDA's campaign was was focused on. Um, I think we'll have to see. I mean, we'll have to see what happens when you get more schools that aren't in those circumstances um, becoming academies, what impact that has on the ability of schools in challenging circumstances to uh, attract staff. It's certainly something that, that people have raised as a potential concern. And what we don't want, I think, is a two-tier education mm. service where you've got kind of schools in challenging circumstances miles away from other schools that are perceived to be successful. What what I think we, we all want to see is a kind of coherent national education system that meets the needs of all learners wherever they live and whichever school they go to. Just before you go, can we just return to what we talked to earlier about if, you know, competition tough in teaching, have you got any sure. tips for teachers how they can stand out? It, I mean, there, there are so many, again, there's so much advice and guidance out there um, um, that's readily available for teachers on things like preparing for interviews, um, on kind of getting the experiences that they need in order to, to pass that kind of um, recruitment process. I think one thing people who have been successful tend to point to is that on their application forms, I mean, that's, that's a really critical point, that the application forms, and I, I've been in a process where I've, I've been a governor of a school and I've looked at the application forms that have come in. And, and I think one one thing it's really important to do, and sometimes this is underemphasized, is, is to make your application form, or however you, you complete that, really clear and really to the point and really highlights the skills that you've developed during your teacher training if you're, if you're applying for jobs and also what benefit that is going to bring to the school uh, you're applying to. I mean, those are, those are really kind of important things and the clearer and sharper an application is, um, the more chance you've got of, of getting an interview and then the more chance you've got of, of getting employed so so the relevance of your experience and the relevance of your skills really is is so important particularly in circumstances where there's a lot of competition for jobs so that's that's one tip perhaps I can give now the lesson's not quite over Flora Milne science teacher at Southfields Community College has kindly sneaked off into the staff room so she can tell us all about life on the graduate teaching program and on-the-job training route into teaching where you are in school from day one. Um, Flora, in school from day one, it sounds quite scary, is it? Um, It's quite full-on. You're sort of thrown in at the deep end, but you're not not given a full teaching timetable straight away. They sort of ease you into that. So you start off with just a few lessons or, or even no lessons for the first week or so, and then they gradually build up your timetable to eventually a 60% teaching timetable. Okay, so it's not, you know, presenting assembly or anything straight away. So. Not straight away, no. All right. Um, I just firstly wanted to ask you, you used to work in advertising, didn't mm. you? What made you want to become a teacher? I've had a lot of people ask me that. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite a switch. I think advertising was uh, really interesting to work in, but ultimately it's, it's a very stressful environment and you have to give a lot of yourself and put a lot of a lot in at the end of the day for me personally there just wasn't enough fulfillment out of that whilst teaching you manage your stress I think more because you know how much marking or how much progression you want from students or how much information you've got to get across 
and you're kind of managing it rather than being at someone else's beck and call and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's just so much more fulfillment, I find, from just a student learning something new about the world or or seeing them progress socially in a group. It sounds incredibly trite, but I, I find it really, um, really cool to see kids excited about <laughs> about science and connecting up dots mentally. Tell me about, um, you know, what the GTP route is and, and what it entails. I mean, you mentioned a bit about you build up your lessons, but give us more of an intro. Okay, so um, you're employed by a school, so you're therefore paid which makes it a lot of an easier transition if you've if you've been in full-time employment before so you're paid a graduate salary it takes about a year and you're in that one school for the whole year and then you're affiliated with a training provider as well um so sometimes that might be a university or in my case at southfields community college they're a training provider in their own right so my lectures and training happens all on site I think it can be a lot more practical than a PGCE because you're in school straight away rather than in in sort of a lecture theatre. But, you know, that that can be a bit intimidating. I was just about to ask you why you picked this route to become a teacher. It's because it's it's paid employment Mm. um, and you're paid for that whole year instead of being a student for a year. And, you know, I wanted to get I wanted to get into it straight away, get, get my teeth into something. So I wanted to hit the ground running. How competitive is the GTP? We've just been talking to um, Darren Northcott from the NSUWT and he we were talking about how competitive teaching is and was this route quite tough to get a place on? It was, actually, yes. I'm, I'm in a state school and I don't think there are as many positions, GTP positions in state schools as there are, for example, PGCE slots. So there are fewer places and that makes it, by its nature, more competitive. Um, and you're a science teacher. How and why did you pick that subject? Um, well, I did human sciences at university. And uh, and so I think I've always been a bit of a secret geek. I think scientists learn how living things work and how they interact with one another and how they evolve and how we can influence the world around us. And I think that's pretty exciting, really. Okay, finally, have you got any tips that you've picked up on the job that you would like to share with any other budding teachers or trainees? Um, I think don't take things personally as much as you can. (laughs) I think young people can lash out and say really quite personal and and unpleasant things. That can be a bit of a shock. Um, But to remember that it it comes from some sort of insecurity that they have or, or problem in their life rather than the way you are as a fundamental human being. And also a tip that was given to me was when you leave after a day, it can be quite gruelling and exhausting. Think of one positive thing from your day before you do anything else, before you have any conversations with anyone else or launch into any sort of negative feedback. Encapsulate one positive thing about your day so that you keep remembering why you're doing it. That was Flora Milne and she's a science teacher at Southfields Community College and she's training on the Graduate Teaching Programme. Now if this has inspired you, there are some interesting education roles in the jobs top 10. We have Jefferson Davis from Guardian Jobs here to help Ali reveal the chart. 
Starting off this educational top 10 is a role advertised by recruitment consultants Careers Teachers for a secondary school math teacher. At 9, get your game head on, Bournemouth University are looking for a practitioner in residence in computer games art. The Alzheimer Society need a campaign manager at 8. And at number 7, wannabe school bursars should apply to TPP not-for-profit. In at 6 is an education service manager at the House of Commons. While halfway through at 5, Protocol Education is looking for a biology teacher. Some glitz and glamour with BAFTA at 4. They're looking for a learning and events tutor. At 3, the Centre for Cities is seeking a chief executive. And pip to the post at 2, Newcastle College are looking for a lecturer in welding and fabrication. But this week's top of the jobs is communications manager for the Aldridge Foundation. Right, if you want to apply or find out more about those jobs, go to guardianjobs.co.uk. Before we go, let's have a quick look at the Q&As coming up. Ali, can you give us some info? Sure. Um, 7th of June, we've got careers paths into the housing sector. And then 9th of June, our experts will be offering a guide to assessment centres, which is very topical at the moment as graduate recruitment season kicks off. And June the 10th, we're looking at graduate schemes into the civil service. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks very much to our guests, Darren Northcott, Flora Mill, Julian Lindley, Dr Saeed Mosler and Guy Cockcroft, Jefferson Davis from Guardian Jobs and of course Alison White and Harriet Minter. I'm Kerry Eustace, Careers Talk was produced by Kate Taylor. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.